Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you have chosen to worship this morning with us, either presently here in the sanctuary or online or wherever you're going to watch this later from. Um, I am super happy to be here. So let me uh, just open us with prayer. You can grab a pew Bible if you don't have one. Just go ahead and turn to page 800 and something. What do I have written down? 816. Or just go to the start of the New Testament and just kind of figure it out from there. So, Father, we thank you so much for who you are, that you offer us rest that we could never get on our own, but that we so desperately need. Strengthen our hearts this morning uh, to hear maybe the hard thing, to receive the wonderful blessing of your love. Amen. All right. Just real quick quick housekeeping. Um, Tim is going to be the elder in the office, and uh, Tim wants to meet with you, to pray with you, as do all of our elders and leaders. Uh, we, we desire to make sure that your heart is connected to the very heart of Christ. And uh, in so doing, we do have these books. Um, that's part of the series for the next four weeks, and those are free for the taking, um, and we desire you to root yourself in God's Word first, and then in a good book that pulls you closer to His heart. So this book, will, and that's... Um, available for free in the office. You'll see there's a bookmark in each one, and the bookmark is just a basic reading plan. The chapters are pretty short, anywhere from three to five pages each. That's like my type of chapter, nice and short. And you can, um, you can grab that and join with us as we start reading through things this week. So uh, that's out of the way. So last week, I had this phrase where I said, letting ourselves, and actually it was a quote, um, letting ourselves be loved by God is more important than loving God. Now, I know to some that could have been a little bit challenging, like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to love God and love others. The goal there was to help and that it's a, it's a play on words from 1 John 4, right? In 1 John 4, it says, um, we love because he first loved us. It's a chicken or the egg sort of thing, right? Like, which came first, right? Like, I can't respond in love unless God first loved me. So it stands to reason, then, that I have to be able to just simply receive the love of God. And the reason I said that is because if we can't let ourselves be loved by God, then we're going to search for it in a thousand ways. We're going to search for it in career. We're going to search for it in relationship. We're going to search for it in achievement. We're going to search for it in alcohol and pornography. And you name it, whatever you want to numb your soul, to make you feel as though you're loved, you will search for it. You'll go after it. Letting ourselves be loved by God is more important than loving God. Because I can't love him unless I receive his love. And so just the reason I did that is because I wanted to know, how did it go this week? How was that? Was there a practice where you had the opportunity to sit for 10 or 15 minutes and just listen to the Lord, maybe read some scriptures and just hear him speaking his truth over you? How'd that go? Because that's where we're headed the next four weeks, to understand the very heart of Christ for us. One of the great dangers of being a Christian for a long time is that you can really start trying to connect other people to the heart of Christ and forget that it's for you. And just kind of forget, like, yeah, I've got so much going on. I just kind of forgot that God really deeply loves me. Simple. But perhaps you're like me, where you're weary at times from the journey. Maybe you've grown up in church and 
and you believe you've sought out all the answers God has to offer. But instead of answers, you find discouragement. Losing your oomph, as it were, um, you wonder, why continue if it's only going to lead to this? And frustrated with what you thought would be a depth of joy, instead there seems to be constant letdown. So you wonder again, why is it that I'm trying so stinking hard? What gives? Running on what little caffeine you could put in your body before you plunk yourself down in the pew. You're ready to hit the easy button and tap out. Anyone? Anyone resonate with that? Or maybe you're new to this Christian journey sort of thing. Maybe you're just learning of Christ for the first recent months and you find yourself confused that his followers and the teaching that you hear sometimes seems to depict God as only concerned with whether people behave, attend church regularly, and serve others tirelessly. And maybe it's like you're just wondering, there's this nagging sense that these people, and and now I'm one of them, kind of believe that God is just like low-grade disappointed in me constantly. And you even, even maybe go so far as to ask this question. He loves me. That's what they say. That's what I've been told. But does he like me? So if you're here this morning and you're hearing that, that's what we're starting our series on. This this idea of the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And it's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And all the gospel accounts, as pointed out in the book, if you've read any of it yet, in all the gospel accounts, there's a place that Jesus tells us about his heart. And it's there. For I am gentle and I am lowly. He could have said, I am holy and vengeful. He could have said, I am amazing and incredible. He could have said, I'm powerful and amazing. He said, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Why? Why would he describe his own heart that way? What would be the purpose? Well, if you're getting nothing else this morning, if you take something away, I hope it's this, that our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. Now, it's not a new phrase. I borrowed it from Augustine, St. Augustine, in the late 300s, early... But there's a, there's a precursor to that. If you know the story of Augustine at all, here's a guy who uh, grew up with tremendous intellectual acuity. Like, he just knew things. He was super smart, bright student, um, But his heart was restless. And so he had this phrase where he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till we find rest in you. And he spoke from a place of truth because he tried it. 
At 17, he moved to a different place for education, and he lived a prolifically immoral life. So he learned that our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. So this morning, there's three things that we're going to gain from the passage. The invitation, the offer, and then the result. So starting first with the invitation, what do we see? He says this, come to me all. Like, I'm not a great linguist, but all means all in like all languages. <laughs> it's, it's pretty leveling. It's pretty awesome that he says, come to me all. But I find that word come very curious. If you flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the process of calling his disciples. And it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And you're like, okay, well, why? What's the connection? Actually, in the Greek, that word follow and come are the same. So think about that. The invitation of Jesus of come is also an invitation to follow. There's a whole uh, belief that we can just accumulate a bunch of knowledge and it will get us somewhere. And it will in some respects. But when Jesus says, follow me, his invitation to the disciples was to come to him. Not just to get rank and file behind him and just trot along like a little kindergarten teacher leading her class quietly through the halls. He intends much more for his children. And then he says, all who labor and are heavy laden. So let's focus for a minute on that idea of labor. I would say it's something like this. It's, it's about the idea of trying to crowbar or manage your life into a controlled space in order to get peace. So let me just ask, is that something you've done? Is that something that's, that's common for you, that like when circumstances arise, you're frenzied in your mind and you're thinking, how can I make this work? How can I get this to where I need it to be so that I can sleep tonight? There are plenty here, self-included, who do that. The term labor in the Greek actually just means to tire from overuse. Um, great strain, stress. And there's really kind of a couple of ways that I think this shows up. I think there's the labor of self-righteousness. And you see this all throughout the New Testament, primarily with how Jesus handles the disciples. These people are straining, they're pressing, they're pushing, they're constantly working, they're laboring. They don't really realize it. They don't realize that a better way is standing right in front of them. But they're doing that. You see, no one can keep the burden of perfection but Christ. So his offer is to come to him. His offer is, hey, come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who labor. It's, it's like, I'm coming to church, I'm, I'm part of life group, I'm going to youth group, I, I'm even part of like that really old men's club that eats dinner at Jack's. Like, I'm doing all the stuff. And you're looking around, and there's no peace. And you're just struggling. 
and your wheels are spinning. But then there's also the labor of cover-up. And I would put it this way. Uh, we do really well, and please hear me when I say this, everything I'm preaching to you first comes through, through me, right? Like I have to reconcile that this is my reality too. Have you ever tried to present a different picture of yourself when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning? Nobody raise your hand because we're all guilty, okay? Like we, we all do this where there's something about how we want to appear before somebody else and then the reality of what we have lived like all week long. And it's just like, what sort of, what sort of Doug am I presenting to you? So then he moves on from labor and he talks about this idea of being heavy laden. So um, I feel like probably maybe the best way to understand this is just, you know, circumstances, challenges, sinfulness, those things pile up. The Greek word actually carries with it this idea of this is the passive effect of labor. When you labor long and hard, when you work hard, when you're tired from overuse, you are heavy laden. The two are connected. You can't separate the two. So I, I thought maybe a good way to illustrate this would be um, I need a strapping young lad. Judson, you look good. Come on up. Okay. Uh, and, and then I need two other strapping young lads. So let's just go with twins. You live near me, man. It's your fault. Come here. Okay. So here's Judson, right? Strapping young lad. Look at this guy. I mean, he's got guns for days, right? <laughs> I think I actually heard Annabelle laugh. That made my day. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. I'm going to tell the truth. Judd is a sinner, right? Judd, is that true? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, not my dad. Um, so, so Judd carries with him sinfulness wherever he goes, doesn't he? Like, he's going to mess everything up. Put him in a, put him in a room, something's going to smell. Something's, I mean, there's going to be a problem, but there's going to be, Judd's a sinner, and he carries that with him. Now, through his life, as he ages and as he, as he continues to experience things in his life, he's also going to have circumstances and challenges. Like maybe, maybe 10 years from now, heaven forbid, God protect him, but maybe Judd develops an illness that is just ongoing. And he just gets really weary. Okay, so what I need you to do is jump up. Judd, I want you to hold him just like, you know, because you're a strong lad. Jump up in his arms. Come on, yeah. There you go. Hold. Come on. You got him. Okay. He's got circumstances that are happening. Now think about this. Here comes, and he's trying to crowbar his life into this place of peace. And then, come on, Judd. Hold it together, man. So, and then here's, here, comes, here comes Liam. And Liam is like, you know what I am? I'm the stress of providing for a family. So now you also have to work. So you just jump on his back real quick. That'd be great. Just, no, just good. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Now, here, here we have Judson. You guys are good. Go ahead. So just, just consider that. I mean, it's a silly little metaphor, right? But he's heaven because he's labored. He's worked really hard to try to get his life to a place of peace. And guess what he can't control? He can't control the circumstances. He can't control the stress. He is a sinner, right? Again, doesn't really have a ton of control over that in terms of the fact that it was his by birthright. It's just interesting to me. And all of those things that we just talked about with Judd, they, they produce, I think, from a truth-to-life perspective, a narrative. 
You might hear it like this. If you suffer from hearing these phrases like, I really should, and and I need to do this, or if I could just... The offer of rest, then, is for you. And the first thing that Christ asks is that you just come to him. Just come. In John chapter 6, Jesus is giving probably the hardest piece of truth to his disciples because he sees his fame growing and people are like, dude, I want to be around that guy. He's doing the stuff. He's healing people. He's doing awesome things. And so Jesus, unlike the American model of ministry, says, let me just tell you a bunch of hard crud that's going to make you guys leave. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. First of all, not a popular statement. I mean, not sure if you've tried that around friends, but it's not going to like win friends and influence people. And so Jesus, and it says they left because his sayings were too hard. So before we believe that gentle and lowly means mushy and soft, check Jesus. Because <laughs> Jesus still holds people to account for sin. He just also provides a way out in himself. And so here's what we see then with this idea that how do we come to Jesus? I'll tell you how. The scriptures tell us how. Like a child. A repentant, broken child. In John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You're like, well, I don't know if Jesus will take me. He will. If you are broken and humble and repentant, he will always take you. See the same thing in John 7, where Jesus is talking about rivers of living water. And it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, and again, here's the offer, let him come to me. Right? Are you heavy laden? Are you broken? Come to me. On the side of the seashore, fishing, doing your job, follow me. Come to me. It's the same call of discipleship. And the context in Matthew chapter 11 that we see Jesus has just gotten done talking about all the mighty he's done and how these people didn't repent at the mighty works. They were like, ooh, fireworks show, do it again. And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> the, the point of this is to call you to something greater. And they missed it. There's some scripture to consider there. I'm not going to go over that just for sake of time, but it should be um, in your bulletin or at least up on the screen. So the invitation, but what's the offer? Jesus says in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. But then he leads it with this like, take my yoke. Now yoke is obviously a discipleship metaphor in this context. You're reading it and you're like, well, what does that really mean? And I've demonstrated this before, but a yoke was a heavy beam that was laid across two draft animals, like two oxen or two cows that were going to plow a field, and their necks are hooked together so that they go in the same direction to accomplish the same task together. Keyword, together. We're going to learn toward the end that Jesus's yoke is a non-yoke, and his burden is a non-burden meaning they're not what you would typically expect. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's like, attach yourself to me. Attach yourself to me. Come along with me.
And then he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle. I don't know about you, but this phrase, this one statement, just wrecks me. When I think of somebody who's gentle, and then when I think of Jesus, Jesus is not trigger happy or overreactive to my sin and my suffering. Have you ever thought when you're coming to him for the thousandth time and you're like, I did it again. And he's not overreacting. He's not blowing you up. He's not beating you down. He's gentle and he's lowly. Jesus is gentle and lowly. And the idea that we can have access to him, which is what lowly means, he's accessible. When I think of my own sin, and maybe when you think of yours, you might be thinking this, like the the, the constant annoyance or displeasure that God must experience when he sees me rounding the corner. Like I'm going to come around, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time with you. And he's like, oh, there's Doug. Come on. There's none of that with God. There's just none of that. And it's not just because God is like, well, I ignore sin. No, it's because he's looking at us through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he's looking at me and he's like, I'm seeing my son through, I'm seeing you through my son. I'm deeply pleased with my son. I said those words in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4 at his baptism. Like, I am deeply pleased with him. I love you. What are we waiting for? If that offer to rest, as Hebrews 4 still stands, what are we waiting for? Because he's accessible, like lowly talks about. Dane Ortland in the book actually says it this way. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. And I love this. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. That's powerful. Do you have a burden? Have you tried to crowbar your wife to manage some level of peace? Come to Jesus. You're like, well, what might that look like? Well, I think from a truth-to-life perspective, maybe a good question would be, what makes me believe he's inaccessible? When you think about when you come to Jesus, take it back one step and, and think back when you were a child. What would make you think that your parents were inaccessible to talk to about something? What would it be? I, I would probably say shame. I'd probably say a little bit of fear. Those are all good things that propel us toward Christ. How we manage those things is a little bit in heavy laden portion that Jesus is talking about. So what makes me believe that he's inaccessible? And maybe this week, um, I, I would look at just a regular daily practice, not just application. Application has this idea of like, put on a Band-Aid for a time, take it off once it's healed. Practice looks at this ongoing discipline. Discipline is not a popular word these days, is it? Whether it's about discipline for disobedience or missing something or just discipline in terms of like having a way of life about you. 
But let me tell you a discipline that's going to open up the, the large vista of rest for you. Confession and repentance. So what makes me believe he's inaccessible? I think maybe a good answer to that question that you could look at from a truth-to-life perspective would be, how are you praying? Remember, when he says, take my yoke and learn from me, he's asking you to link up with him. So maybe a good way to pray this week, maybe just daily, and, and jot this down in your notes because sometimes we forget things easily. Maybe just daily you ought to do this. God, it's very clear in your word that you are at work. Help me to see where you're at work and with you. Because is there anything worse than working against the Lord? <laughs> like, no, there isn't. Like he's, this week we were talking about it uh, around family devotions and, and then later on and, and just this idea that God is like the perfect enemy in terms of if you really want to believe that someone would win every time, he's perfect in everything. He would be the perfect enemy. So I, I don't know that I would want to be against God. It just, it's striking to me. So maybe praying this prayer like, Lord, where are you already at work and how can I partner with you? And you can see some scriptures again for consideration under like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 42 talks about this idea that he just does not, says a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Are you bruised and broken by your own sinfulness, by your own circumstances? Then the offer stands. I'm going to give you rest, but you need to take my yoke. So then the result, we have the invitation, we have the offer, then what's the result? The result is you will find rest for your souls. Now I want to be clear, it's rest for your souls, not for your bodies. You can see in John chapter 16, verse 33, there's this place where Jesus is giving the long, in a good way, about the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15, 16, even part of 17. He's telling his disciples at the Last Supper, this is what Spirit of God is going to do when, when, when I give him to you, right? And um, there's this really curious phrase in 33 where he says, um, let not your hearts be troubled. Or not, let not your hearts be troubled. He talks about this idea, in this world, rather, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is, he said this right before he gets like wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, murdered on a cross, dead. So later on, perhaps the disciples were wondering, wonder what that was all about. He kind of whiffed on that one. Until when? And then he didn't whiff. He hit a grand slam. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. Kind of has his things figured out. It's rest for your souls, not your bodies. The promise here that we see that you will find rest for your souls in Matthew 11.30 is that salvation offers a real-time, no-need-for-striving reality. You see, the, the work in that sense has already been done by Christ. Therefore, we can rest. However, the tension is what happens between the here and the final rest. Are you with me? The tension is, is the older child who leaves the Lord. 
The tension is the four young children biting at your ankles and you can't get a thing done. The tension is the stress of knowing you're going to lose your job. The tension is the difficulty of an, uh, of an unloving marriage. The stress, right? The tension between the here and, and the not yet. It's in that tension where sin and discouragement and faith and doubt and works and grace live. Perhaps a simple way to say it is life. And then Jeremiah 16, or sorry, Jeremiah 6 play. Where Jesus and the offer that he makes in Matthew, you can see even in an Old Testament perspective. It says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now consider for just a minute just what he's meaning there. The way forward is not some newfangled uh, self-help psychology. It's not some awesome book by some guru who's going to get you there. The way forward is the way back to an ancient path and a road laid by the suffering and love of Jesus for you. It's ancient. But did you catch what the end of verse 16 says in Jeremiah 6? It says, but they said, we will not walk in it. So rest, friends, is an offer that stands the result is that your souls will be at ease. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Think about that for your soul. Easy, meaning and pleasant. Light, meaning easy to bear. So can I offer this maybe as a truth to life? You'll see some scriptures up there, but like Romans 2, 4 talks about the kindness and tolerance of God. His patience leads to repentance. So if you're looking for something that says like, how can I get into the presence of God in terms of like uh, understanding rest? I'm going to keep coming back to repentance because it's so critical. Maybe a good way to say it would be this, that repentance is a form of rest. Why? Because I rest from what I've tried to do to make it all right. I rest from trying to put a face on to impress you. I rest from, from hurting you from the way that I have lived my life for self. I rest in the arms of Jesus, his sacrifice, his life, death, resurrection, and his spirit to give me strength so that I can love you like I'm supposed to instead of like I feel like I need to. That's rest. That's the type of rest that he wants. So as we close, the band's going to come back up and have one more song just to reflect. I want you to be asking this question. You can sing along or you can just listen. Come up. What is it that keeps me from rest? What is it that keeps me from the very free offer? What is it that, like the nation of Judah, you're saying, here's the ancient paths, here's the ways, walk in it, and, and my response is, we will not. What is it? 
And then if you need prayer, elders will be dispersed throughout the congregation. Tim will be in the office. I'll stay up front here for a little bit. But as the song wraps up, um, you guys will be dismissed. Um, Thank you for your time. And I pray that we enter his rest.